Going where the silence is. The Quo Podcast. Hi, I'm Ali and welcome to the Quo Podcast. Today we're going to be delving into the AOD sector. AOD stands for alcohol and other drugs. And this sector has traditionally focused on helping adults combat the problematic use of alcohol and other drugs. But what about young people and teenagers who find themselves in patterns of addiction? What support is available for them? And what role can families play? Is harm minimization a viable strategy or should we only be encouraging them to abstain? SDEC, Sydney Drug Education and Counselling Centre, is a dynamic youth service for those aged 12 to 25 years and their families. SDEC provides access to education, support and counselling for the problematic use of alcohol and other drugs. They work from an evidence-based, trauma-informed perspective with a focus on harm reduction. I interviewed CEO Catherine Key and clinical coordinator Belinda Volkov. This is me with CEO Catherine Key. I guess to start off with, I just wanted to get a sense of what SDEC is and what services your organisation provides to people. Sure. Uh, So SDEC stands for Sydney Drug Education and Counselling Centre. It is a specialised youth service that focuses on young people who have problematic use of alcohol and other drugs. Uh, And often they have comorbid uh, mental health conditions as well or a coexisting mental health issue. So we work both with the young people and with their families or carers where applicable to reduce the harm associated with that drug use and to provide therapeutic intervention to to stabilise all of those factors and support the family to help the young person as well. Just for people who don't have a great understanding of the sector, can you explain what AOD means and, yeah, just what what the sector is all about? Sure. So AOD stands for alcohol and other drugs. So alcohol being seen as a as a as a type of drug. Um, and the sector itself really works with people whose use of alcohol and other drugs is causing difficulties or problems in their life. So where it might be impacting on them in a way that's either escalating mental health concerns or creating other issues for them around families, relationships, friendships, employment, financial issues, areas of life that that we all need and, and where... Ideally, alcohol and drug use would not interfere with those areas of life. So the AOD sector aims to reduce that impact. And that can occur in a range of different ways. So in some parts of the sector are focused on reducing harm. So that's programs like needle and syringe programs and, um, you know, education-based programs about how to actually reduce problems if you are using and in other parts of the sector focus on elimination of drug use or elimination of alcohol use uh, to eliminate those kinds of concerns altogether. Mm, and I'm interested in sort of harm reduction versus elimination. Are these kind of opposing approaches or can they be 
you know, um, I guess used together for, I guess they've got a similar aim, but just a different approach. Yep. Um, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, they're, they're really on a spectrum, I would say. So uh, all alcohol and other drug interventions aim to reduce harm. That's the point of them. And abstinence from those drugs is one end of that spectrum. So for some people, they find it easier or um, more constructive to be abstinent and just eliminate that risk for themselves. And, and then working backwards all the way to the other end of the spectrum where people really have very little inclination to stop using at that particular time. So what we do is we, we kind of focus on, okay, so you're going to use drugs or alcohol. How can we prevent you from actually um, contracting an infectious disease in the process of that? How can we help you to sustain employment? How can we help you in other ways? that will kind of uh, reduce the impact of that on your life and on the community. Catherine, on what is unique about SDEC's approach? So often in drug and alcohol services, the focus is on the individual with the, with the problematic use. And what, we, what the research really shows and what we really see is that outcomes are, dr- are majorly improved if young people have the support of those around them. So there's a couple of things with this. One is that the the drug use or the alcohol use doesn't exist in isolation. It actually impacts all of the people around the person who's using that substance. And often the families are heavily impacted and, uh, and they don't necessarily get the support that they need to be able to cope with the impact of that. And that can actually interfere with the outcomes for the person using substances. So we aim to support the family and buffer the impact of that and simultaneously work with the young person around what their goals are and how they can take steps to improve their own situation. And overall, we see that where the families are involved in, in, in service delivery, Uh, the outcomes for the young people tend to be much better. Catherine explores the accessibility of AOD services and how stigma affects interventions. From my understanding, your service is accessible to everyone. Does it involve cost to to the young person or the family? No, no, there's no cost. It's Mm. free. And and is that something that's... um, the norm in the AOD sector? And I guess, why do you think accessibility is important in this context? It's, uh, it's, it's not entirely the norm. So, for, so we're part of the, the non-government sector, so we're funded by health. And in health-funded services, it is normal for the services to be minimal cost. However, I would say most of the services delivered are delivered privately and they're delivered through private psychologists or therapists and through the private health system. And uh, and that creates kind of tiers of support, I would say. So essentially the more support you can afford, the more support you will get. And so it's really important for for services to be publicly funded and available for people because we know that um, substance use is the most stigmatised health condition on the planet and that stigma really reduces people's willingness or ability to access treatment 
And, and so reducing access is extremely important in getting people to engage in services. On average, it takes people on up to 20 years to access interventions for drug and alcohol use. So wow. particularly young people, if we can get them engaged in services much earlier and, um, and wrap support around them, even if they're not at a point where they're ready to make significant changes around that, it means they're actually engaged in support. So when the time does come that they're ready to make those changes, they're much more likely to seek help and they're much more likely to have had positive experiences with intervention. And, and cost can be a significant barrier for people, particularly if they're using um, illicit substances. They've often got criminal histories. Employment might be difficult. Uh, they, they don't necessarily have access to the resources that a lot of people may have. So uh, it's imperative that people can actually access support when they need it in a timely way. Yeah, exactly. I guess what you've said sort of brings up a couple of questions that I have. Firstly, just picking up on what you said around the stigma um, of substance abuse, like that really resonates um, with me, especially as you mentioned, people can get involved in the criminal justice system um, and there's a huge stigma around that. So it's kind of like this yeah. double stigma. Um, do you work with young people who have criminal histories and um, yeah. like what do you think what do you think sort of people outside the sector need to kind of understand or change to help reduce that stigma around substance abuse? Yeah, fundamentally, I think we need to be shifting the narrative around substance use away from being a criminal issue towards being a health issue. And I think that change has started to happen, but it's still very prevalent for for illicit drug use particularly to be stigmatised because it's illegal, which at this point in time it is illegal and that's the reality of the situation. But with that comes um, a whole range of vulnerabilities in terms of access and ending up in the criminal justice system. It means that the drugs aren't regulated, they're not easy to access, people have, often have to commit crimes, to act, they're inherently committing a crime to access the drug. Uh, often employment is, is challenging for people so they're, you know, they may be engaged in criminal activity to, to get the money to buy drugs. So all of those things come at a cost in terms of people become more likely to, to, to enter the criminal justice system. We don't see the same level of stigma around alcohol as we do with uh, illicit drugs, but it's still, uh, there's still enormous this correlation and cost to the community in terms of impact and on the community. So I think if we can see it as a health issue that this person needs support and they need services that can comprehensively support them to make some adjustments or changes to the way they're relating to these substances and treat people with compassion and care as opposed to punishment for but what is often not a choice, people often don't, um, they often express that they don't want to be engaging in, the, in their relationship with drugs in the way that they are, you know, and it's not a moral issue. It's, it's, a, um, it's an issue like any other issue that people experience and we need to be 
showing care and support to people and helping them to make the changes that they need in a timely way. I guess we're all conditioned in this way to have moral judgments towards people who have substance abuse issues and that's really problematic. And then I was thinking what you were saying about the effect of criminalising these drugs and how it seems like there's a bit of a double standard with alcohol because from my understanding alcohol has a huge toll and is a a significant um, problem for people of all ages but I guess alcoholism while stigmatised isn't stigmatised to the degree of you know, I don't know, ice and, and or yeah. can, or maybe not so much cannabis, but yeah, other drugs. And I guess it highlights the relationship between that and the the legal framework around yeah. these drugs. Absolutely. Yeah. If you are enjoying this episode, please support us by rating and reviewing this podcast, visiting our website, thequo.com.au and following us on our socials using the handle at the Quo AU. Clinical Coordinator Belinda Volkov on the AOD sector and its history. Drug and alcohol traditionally um, was made up of services that are for adults. And, and then obviously as the years went by, we saw young people presenting and, of course, those services, those very minimal services that are available um, are still available and and, and work really well, but they're very under-resourced, under-serviced. And and what happened was, you know, if you go right back in history, people often talk about why is it that drug and alcohol and mental health are, are separated? You know, why are they separated? And everyone argues about it and talks about it and tries to make it better. And and so this is where, when we go back in history, the separation came way back in, you know, sort of 1800s times and way back in different times when drug and alcohol issues and drug and alcohol addiction and dependence has been around forever since the dawn of time. And generally when you'll see those things, it'll be in certain times where people use um, coping strategies to make themselves okay at the time. So what happened back in the in the sort of the 1900s, and and this is why um, uh, programs like 12 Step and that came out of the fact there was nothing for people that had significant addictions, particularly around at that time, alcohol was the major focus. And there's all sorts of amazing books and literature written about gin debauchery and and all the times of, you know, the the frightening times of of when they were dealing with specific addictions. And similarly, you know, certain addictions have been quite, if you look at history, you'll see some will go up, some will go down. At that time, there was particular people that were not being looked after physically, mentally, and they were treated as morality. um, It was a morality issue. So you are weak and you are a drunk um, they had the Inebriates Act and all those sort, sorts of things back in, the, back in the day. And so there was nothing for people in relation to treatment did not exist because it looked like an issue of weakness and morality. And then psychiatric services, and I'm being very simplified here, psychiatric services and mental health kind of went one way and kind of the drunks and the addicts went the other. And that was kind of, then that's the language that's literally been um, majorly indoctrinated over many, many, many years. So when finally, um, and there's all sorts of things around the temperance movements, it's very complicated, the history, but coming back to the, where it kind of started in relation to treatment, um, 12-step and those sorts of fellowships were the only things that people had. And that was very important because one of the things we know about group work 
Uh, this is very different for young people, by the way. We we have not found that that's helpful, um, and I can and I can talk to you about why. But if people want to do it, it's fine. But back then, it was all people had, and so in our systems and in our drug and alcohol work, all the work that came after that was based around abstinence-based treatment modalities. Um, so understandably, because should some people, you know, stop drinking, you know, absolutely. Um, can you make them? I haven't learned how. I, I know we can work with them, which is why when we do treatment at people, particularly young people, that's not going to be very helpful because they, they won't talk to us. And we know that when people are in active um, dependence or in substance abuse, there's a, there's a level of deception to self you know, around being okay. And, and so this idea that people are supposed to sit there and openly say what's wrong kind of became part of the indoctrinated rhetoric that we're kind of still recovering from today. Belinda explains SDEC's trauma-informed approach to interventions. There was never any understanding around this idea, and this is a trauma-informed way of looking at it, it's not what's wrong with you, but what's happening for you. And so there's this idea still now, what's wrong with you, not what's happening for you. Um, and so, and that doesn't mean that families and people that are being impacted by people's drug and alcohol use don't have a right to put up boundaries and keep themselves safe. But what we also know is most people with significant substance abuse, always, nearly always, um, have underlying issues, um, quite often mental health, quite often trauma is a part of that. Sometimes the trauma comes later. Sometimes people go into drug and alcohol use and then they become traumatised through their use, through the lifestyle that they get involved in. So it's never a one-hitch-you-hooked. It's always the perfect storm, a complication. Clinical coordinator Belinda Volkov on parents and their involvement in the service. Parents enter the service and they will be put through a six-week program which is about two hours a week for about six weeks. The reason we do that is, is for lots of reasons, whether they're in crisis point at that time or they're, and obviously we thoroughly assess so that they're suitable for that group. So the parents are going to that group are dealing with children that are using substances um, that are on a range of levels of problematically from mild to wild. So some might be having a really, you know, it's kind of starting to kick off. Some are right in it, some are right at the other end. When we do that group, that group is a process of stabilisation. So you know that idea that when a plane's going down, if, you know, whose mask do you put on first? Mm. <laughs> and you say to people, you know, so if you've got a child next to you and the mask comes down, do you put it on the kid or do you put it on the, the parent? Well, you, you put it on your face first so that you can support your child. That analogy pretty much is what describes what we do for parents. So what we know is they are highly, understandably, by the way, distressed, vigilant, or they might be really, understandably, really angry, or they're trying to work and they don't have time to come in and just stop my kid using drugs and, you know, lots of reasons that families go through from understandably their own pressure. Every single case makes sense when we have the right information, right? So none of those people are coming in and, you know, this idea that it's all on parents. Well, the parents that maybe are not doing well with their children don't come into the service anyway, and those children are usually in out-of-home care and we work with them too. So we work with young people who are in youth housing, okay? But a lot of the time we work with families because when we work with the parents, so if the parent presents first, 
at the service. Say the parent rings up, my child's going crazy, I found cannabis in their room, they're smoking heaps of weed. We then say, can you come in? I want you to see them. We've got a better chance of getting them in the door if you can come in, and we do. Belinda on how she approaches treatment. When we see a young person, particularly like, they're not skipping through the door at 15 going, I'm so done with my drugs. They're probably just warming up and that's that's why they're coming in and why people are understandably concerned. So what we do is we've got these young people in our room and we don't want them to feel like hostages, like as if they're forced. And and sometimes people think, well, just if if we get them in front of you, you can tell them how bad it is. You tell the things that are going to happen to them and you can stop them. And, I, and I'm, I'm like, wow, that's probably why they're still using because everyone's just talking at them. So when I talk about treatment with young people, there's a difference between doing treatment with people and at people. And there's a beautiful saying, I think, that comes from the disability sector that says, nothing about me without me. I think that's the most beautiful thing for every person to hold in the front of their mind nothing about me without me so when people say to me why did they talk to me I'm like I don't know how's your delivery um you know and it always becomes about the other person not talking not that you may be in a position to change that so as clinicians we're not there to be mum or anything else or or their friend either by the way we, we don't try and talk like them so they can relate to us um, usually I'll say to them depending on whether they're voluntary or not um, usually then when they come in, I'll say, well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, you know, are you okay to be here? Um, so it depends. So say they've been coerced in and they're 15 and they're sitting in our room and we'll sort of say, how do you feel about having to come in here? I don't want to. Oh, I can see that. And so what we'll do is we roll with their resistance. That's a classic modality called motivational interviewing. That is prime work that we use. And what it is, it means that you roll with their resistance. And when you roll with resistance and practice this on people, because you'll find it's quite amazing. And this is what they need to do about the vaccination discussion. If you roll with resistance and become curious and non-judgmental, it's phenomenal what they'll tell you. Catherine on the strategic aims of SDEC. Do you kind of do any liaising with government or trying to encourage government to maybe um, change their policies around making, for example, like the possession of drugs um, illegal and maybe focus on not, yeah, criminalising people with abuse problems? I think, um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm new in the role and I think that... um, at this stage, we're, we're not taking that position. We're more focused on supporting the community to respond differently. And I think there's some great work happening in that space at the moment. I know that Uniting has been leading a, a really big campaign around fair treatment, and we're certainly supportive of those campaigns. But I think at this stage, we, we don't have the resources to be going into big advocacy campaigns. I think our focus is more around, uh, you know, working at that community level to to reduce stigma and harm within people's immediate networks. And and I think that our resources at this time are best spent uh, working with individuals, families and their kind of environment to help those around them to understand that that individual's particular needs and and what's impacting on that person. 
Catherine talks about the future of SDEC. I think we have a lot to offer uh, the sector. I think what we are doing is quite is quite unique and is uh, is very is is different to what's happening in in that a lot of this industry or the sector is not particularly joined up. So the services tend to operate quite separately. Alcohol and drug services tend to operate independently of mental health services. So what we're doing is trying to work really collaboratively and in partnership with a range of services. And also we hire very skilled clinicians who are all psychologists, social workers, very highly qualified. And, And I think because of that level of skill, we have a lot to offer the sector in terms of uh, outcomes and understanding what what creates change for young people and and what works well and what doesn't work so well in in working with young people, I think we're um, well placed to kind of add to the broader discourse around around that harm reduction and, and stigma and really be able to advocate for young people in terms of improve service delivery across the whole network because most of the most of the services are geared at adults and uh, you know we're we're a, we're a very unique niche service but we only operate in the northern suburbs at this point in time and so there's there's a limit to how much influence we can actually have at this point and I think it would be great to see the model, uh, expanded or replicated or used by other um, providers in terms of learning from us. And we've started to present at conferences and, and conduct research. And I think there's a big place for us to contribute in that way in the future of really being able to, you know, inform the sector about what, what helps and what makes a difference for these young people so that they can do the same. Clinical coordinator Belinda Volkov on her hopes for the future of the AOD sector and ESTEC. We are pushing for the reduction of stigma and discrimination generally in our sector, which means cultural change. What we hope for is that services actually learn to work effectively better together. What that looks like, I do not know. I think it's not on me to decide what that looks like. I think that's why we need the discussion. And so there's got to be a lot more talks and planning without it being tokenistic, because there's some brilliant minds in my sector and across AOD and mental health, brilliant, brilliant minds that have a lot to offer, but they need to be heard. And that means we have to get into the ears of government and and really have, and we're talking reform here, Ali. This is huge reform. This isn't just like, let's put another hospital bed here. This is, let's look at all of it and let's see how we're going. So that's our dream.